So to do anything great costs something, doesn't it? Terry Fox was a young Canadian who lost his right leg to cancer when he was 18 years old. He decided to run across Canada to raise money and awareness for cancer research. He called his journey the Marathon of Hope, and he ran 42 kilometers every day with a prosthetic leg for 143 days. He faced many challenges, as you can imagine, hard, hard weather, bad weather, pain, obviously fatigue, but he also inspired millions of people with his courage and determination. He raised over $24 million for cancer research. Unfortunately, he had to stop his run when the cancer spread to his lungs. He died at the age of 22, but his legacy lives on. Every year, millions of people participate in the Terry Fox Run, a charity event that raises money for cancer. You also might know the name of someone named Malala Yousafzai, who was a young girl from Pakistan. She loved to learn and she loved to go to school. But when the Taliban took over her region, they banned girls from getting an education. Malala spoke out against injustice and became a target for violence. In 2012, when she was only 15 years old, she was shot in the head by a gunman on her way home from school. She survived the attack and was taken to England for treatment. She did not give up on her dream of education for all girls. She became a global activist. She co-founded the Malala Fund, a nonprofit organization advocating for women's education, and she became the youngest Nobel Prize laureate in 2014. She's now studying at Oxford University and continues to fight for human rights. There are hundreds, thousands of other stories just like these of famous and not-so-famous people who, passed, who paid the price of time and comfort and sacrifice to accomplish great things. There was risk, there was pain, there was time and effort, but, and in the end, some of them even lost their lives. But doing something great costs something, doesn't it? Now look, you and I don't put ourselves in the same category with these kind of people, right? I mean, they're the special people. We're just ordinary people. But you know what? The same rule applies to us. To have a great life, one that matters, that, that uses all your gifts and talents, that impacts people, that gives you that sense of a satisfaction of a life well lived, it's going to require something from you and me. I mean, we know this in ordinary ways, right? If you want to be a great parent, you've got to spend time with your children, quality time with them. If you want to be a great employee, you've got to show up on time, you've got to work hard, you've got to learn about your craft, learn about your field. If you want to be a great spouse, you've got to learn to be more selfless, forgive often, be kind, and spend time going on dates, spending time together, talking things through. It takes effort and intentionality to have a great life. There's a cost. There's always a price. Now, we're on a series right now where we are talking about how we have all been given a mission as followers of Christ. Once you become a follower of Christ, he says, I've got a mission for you. Let me remind you of what that is. It's in Matthew 28, and it says this. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I don't know about you, but I want to get to the end of my life and know that I did everything I could to fulfill the mission that God gave me. Amen? The way you and I may fulfill the mission may be very different. We have different 
gifts and talents, we have different callings, we have different circumstances, but every one of us here, if we know Jesus, if we call ourselves a follower of Jesus, we all have the same mission to spread the love of Jesus and invite people to experience that love for themselves. That's our mission. So in this series that we're in right now, as we go into the summer, we're traveling with the Apostle Paul, and we're seeing how we can learn from him, how he fulfilled this, miss this mission. And one a really unfortunate fact about Paul's journeys, which we're going to be talking about today, is that the journeys were hard. They really cost him. They really cost him a lot. In the end, they cost him his life. I'm going to read you a description. This is Paul's own description of what his ministry life was like. This is from 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 31. He says this, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Sounds great. Sign me up. Let's go. You want to do that with me? Doesn't that sound fun? That was Paul's calling. Hopefully our callings won't be quite so rough. But it's interesting that even through all of that, he said, this is worth it. Sharing the good news was such a passion. He said, Christ's love compels me. He couldn't help but share what Jesus had done and was all worth it. And so I'm praying that, it's, particularly through this message today, but through this whole series, that Christ's love will become so compelling for you that you will be willing to share the love of Christ, no matter what the cost, to share the gospel, to show people what Jesus has done for you. And so we're going to be talking about this today. Now, in this series, uh, for those of you that are just tuning in today, I'm taking you along on a trip that Paul and I took several years ago. It was to Turkey, Greece, and Rome. Um, and we visited many of the cities that the Apostle Paul visited in his missionary journeys, uh, many of the churches that he planted. Um, and he had a pattern through all of his um, journeys. Now, first of all, I want to show you the map, so just so we know where we are. This is just the first journey. He had other journeys, which took him much further into Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia. But um, this is the first journey. And um, what you can see here is that he would go to different cities. I want you to take special note of the cities in the middle. Oh, I have, I have a pointer. I almost forgot. Paul said, you jiggled the pointer too much. And I'm like, it is so hard not to jiggle. <laughs> I'm, I must be amped up because, like, I cannot get it to stand still. All right, anyway. Um, yeah, it's too much. I know, I got two, oh, two hands. Yeah, maybe that helps. Anyway, um, so they started from Antioch. They went down to Cyprus, Perga. And then I want you to take note. Antioch, this is that middle um, city that was right kind of like a crossroads for this whole area. Um, so that's a, um, Antioch, different Antioch than this Antioch down here. Then they went to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. This was the first journey. Their second journey, like I said, went much further out here, but they always passed through these, these different um, cities. And every, in every city that he went to, they followed the same pattern, okay? He would come to a city, and then he would go first to the synagogue, and he would preach first in the synagogue. Now, I have a picture of the first synagogue that, from, that he preached in, Presidian Antioch. If you go to the next page, um, you can see the... Uh, yeah, keep going. 
there we go. This is the ruins of that synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. So they know exactly where Paul was preaching. Um, and it's the first recorded sermon of Paul in Acts 13. You can read it. And he preached right there in the synagogue. So he'd always go to the synagogue first. I thought that was just cool. I, I don't know. There's something about being in that place. Um, but then after the synagogue, then, then they would get an, he'd get an initially positive response, sort of cautiously positive response from the Jewish people in the synagogue. But then eventually there'd be pushback from the Jewish leadership. And so then he would go on um, and he'd preach to the Gentiles. You can go on because I think I have some of these listed out. Yeah, he'd get a positive response, push back from the Jewish leadership, and then he would preach to the Gentiles. He'd go to the Gentiles, and some people would believe, some Jews, some Gentiles, a fledgling church would form and leadership in the church would be established, and then what would come? Persecution. Always, every time, practically. Um, they would, either from the Jews or the Gentiles, or often both, that they would team up together um, and persecute them, and then they'd have a quick departure to the next city. I want to just give you a little taste of what, experience, what they experienced in those cities that I pointed out to you. In Pisidian Antioch, this is in Acts 13, it says this, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. I love how no matter what happens to them, they're still filled with joy. <laughs> we'll get to that. Then in Iconium, they went next. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews refused to, who believe, refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There was a plot afoot among both Jews and Gentiles, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So they get kicked out of Antioch, and now they're getting kicked out of Iconium. Now they're in Lystra. Now in Lystra, it's a longer passage, I won't read the whole thing, but Paul basically heals a man uh, who is lame, and so then all the people decide that Paul and Barnabas must be gods and try to worship them, and they're like, no, 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 you know, there's only one God, and then what, this is what happens. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, so they're trailing him from these other cities, coming to him. They won the crowd over, they stoned Paul, and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. <clears throat> and the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby to do it all over again. <laughs> Isn't this amazing that this is how the church was formed? That this is how the church started with all this trial and trouble? I mean, if I preach this sermon, and at the end of the sermon, y'all start picking up stones and stoning me, and then you drag me out on Pomona Drive and leave me as half dead... <laughs> I think I would conclude, it's time to get another job. <laughs> like, this ministry's not succeeding, right? I mean, this, this would not be a sign of strength. Paul didn't see it that way, did he? So this is what it's going to take to keep bringing the gospel. That he was willing to pay the price. So why? why? What kept Paul going? When do you stay with something that's hard and painful and requires perseverance? What makes you stay with it? Even, let's take, let's take something simpler, something easier, something that we all understand, right? What makes you stay with a new diet or an exercise program or learning a new language or trying to learn the guitar? What makes you stay with it? 
And there's, yeah, and there's one, there's a couple reasons I'm going to, I'm going to give you this morning. And one reason we stay with it is when it excites you, when the results, the idea of the results excites you, right? It has to get your blood pulsing a little bit. You have to be excited. Like, I'm going to get fit. I'm going to get some new clothes. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to look better. You know, I'm going to speak a new language. I'm going to play the guitar and be able to stand up here with Charles and play with him. You know, like, you get this picture of it. You can see it. You want it. You put that picture of your skinny self up on the fridge. You know, you're envisioning it. You're excited. The disciples, over and over again, were so thrilled, so excited about what Jesus had done for them. They couldn't, they couldn't help but talk about it. It was so exciting to them. I want you to hear just a little bit of Paul's sermon, that sermon, that first sermon he preached in Pisidian Antioch at that ruin that I showed you first. This is from Acts 13. This is what Paul said when he was preaching that sermon. He said, we tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. We hear that so much in church, I think sometimes it passes right by us. You've been forgiven of every sin. I want you to think about this for a second. You've been forgiven of every sin. Every sin. Think about all your sins. I know some of you got a lot. I, I got a lot. Think about your sins. Think about all your sins in the past. Think about, your, think about the sins you committed this morning before you got here. Every sin, because Jesus died on the cross for you, his blood covers every sin. He has set you free from the law of sin and death. You have been set free. You can now live not under the bondage to sin, but under grace, under the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Has this changed your life? It's changed my life. Nothing will take that away from you. Nothing will take it away. And this is why the disciples were filled with joy, even though people were throwing stones at them. They were just like, we are set free. We're set free. We're set free. I want your blood to get pumping this morning about what Jesus has done for you. I want you to think about what he's done for you so that you'd then be eager to share your faith and see other people experience Jesus too. I want us to be able to envision us as a missionally minded church that each one of us is reaching out to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and just sharing of our, about our lives, sharing life with people. And then as it comes up, sharing about what Jesus has done for us. I want us to envision new people coming here and, and, and experiencing Jesus as they've never experienced him before and experiencing the love of, of God through the family that's here and through the worship and through the word. And I want us to see people get baptized and meet together in homes and have Bible study and, and get set free and get healed. If we don't have the vision, we might as well go home, church. This vision's not just for me. It's not just for the board. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. What's our vision? Our vision as a church at Gate City Vineyard is this, that we are a welcoming, come-as-you-are community of Jesus followers. First of all, come as you are. We all have a lot of sins. We all have a lot of sins. We come as we are, exactly as we are. And Jesus loves us as we are, but, and we're a welcoming place, but we become Jesus followers. And when we begin to follow him, what do we do? We seek to spread the love of God wherever we go and invite people to experience that love for themselves. Here's a clarification. This study is really not about the Apostle Paul. Even though I'm going to talk about the Apostle Paul a lot, it's not really about him. It's not really about the churches he founded, the places he went. 
The study is about the power and excitement of a story, the story of Jesus and his love. That's what this study is about, how he came and died for our sins and gives us a brand new life. And this incredible yet true story was passed on from person to person in location after location in improbable places to unlikely people. It was told relentlessly and wisely and compassionately at the risk of beatings and imprisonment and death. Why? Because people were so excited about what Jesus had done for them, and they couldn't wait to tell others about it. See, Christianity is a passed-on faith. And so we who are transformed by the power of Christ are able to pass it on to others who then are able to understand and receive the love of God for themselves. And when they receive it, then they want to pass it on to the next person and the next person until there's a great cloud of witnesses, all attesting to the power of God to change a life, to give us peace in the midst of our anxieties, to give us healing in the midst of our hardships and wounds. This is such very good news. And these new Christians then gathered together, first in, in city squares, and then they gathered together in house churches and hundreds of years later in cathedrals and basilicas. And now we're still gathering right here today. Hundreds of churches even just in Greensboro. We're gathering today to declare the love of God because it is such very good news. It cannot be denied. It cannot be denied, and it has spread all over the earth. Never has there been such good news that has touched every culture, every language, every tribe, every place. It goes it transforms lives. Do you love to tell the story? Do you love to tell your story about what Jesus has done for you? Do you love to tell the story? I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. You know that hymn? we got to sing that one more time. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's the story. It never changes people. Cultures may change, times may change, but the story of Jesus and his love doesn't change. If you're sitting here wondering this morning, I don't know about this story. I don't know if it's true. I have not experienced it for myself. I'm not going to sit here and try to prove it to you, try to convince you, but I do encourage you Maybe after service, turn to somebody next to you and say, tell me your story. Tell me how this story has impacted your story. And you can talk to Darius and Megan, or you can talk to Mary and Tim, or you can talk to Thomas and Elisa. You can ask them, and they're going to tell you, I was blind, and now I see. I was in bondage to sin, and now I am set free. I was in fear of death, and now I have life. What a beautiful story. God loves you and died for your sins so you can have life in his name. So that's one of the reasons that we stay with something hard is when it excites us. And I pray that we are excited by what God has done for us. But in other ways, you, you, you also stay with something hard when it has to be you. In other words, when there's no one else can do it but you. 
I would say, you know, having a new baby is a wonderful thing. Uh, we have some new babies in the room. Daniel and Collie, I know Amber and Adam have one. You know, Lisa and Thomas hasn't been that long. So, you know, you got this new baby. It's a wonderful thing, but there's, the, there's a really yucky thing about having a baby, and that is the middle of the night. <laughs> there's nothing worse, right? I mean, you are in your bed, and you are in a deep sleep. You're not even dreaming, right? You're deep, deep, deep out in, and the covers are warm, and you're all cozy, and all of a sudden, you hear, wah, wah. It's that newborn cry, right? It's not even all that loud. It's piercing, though. Like, you can't ignore it, right? And you hear that thing, like, oh, gosh, I got to get out of bed. Why do you do it, you know? Why do you get out of bed for that baby? Well, I know the right answer is because you love the baby, (laughs) okay? Of course you love the baby. You don't want it to suffer. But there's really another reason, the real reason that you get out of bed. It's because there's no one else to do it. I mean, let's be real, okay? If some marvelous person showed up at your bedside in that moment and they said, look, I've been background checked and I know how to, and I know how to, I've got a baby care license and I would love to just take care of that baby for you and change the diaper and feed, why don't you go back to sleep? You'd be like, hallelujah. I mean, (laughs) that'd be it, right? You'd say, please, and the next one's in two hours. Could you do that one too? Like, you would, you'd say yes. Which is why if your husband is just lying there and sleeping through the cries, as sometimes they do, (laughs) you might be tempted to give him a swift kick and then pretend to be asleep (laughs) and hope that they get up, right? And then you dealt it. I don't know anything about doing that. Paul's not here to say that I did or didn't do that, but um, that's good. But the fact of the matter is when it's you, it's you, right? You got to get up. There's nothing else you can do. When you're the only one who can do what's needed for the situation, you do it. And I do believe that we won't persevere in bringing the gospel to the world, paying the price, counting the cost, unless we think that we, you, I, us individually, have something unique to bring to the table. And some of you are like, well, good, I'm off the hook then because, you know, like George has got something or Charles has got something. Those people, they're gifted, but I don't got anything i got news for you. You have got something to bring to the table. Do you, have you ever thought about the fact that no one is uniquely suited to bring the gospel to your world and your sphere of influence but you? No one knows the people you know, has the relationships you have. No one has the abilities and talents that you have. No one has the story that you have and will express it the way you'll express it. You are important to the bringing of this good news to the world Every. One of us, whether you've been a Christian for two minutes or 20 years. We're all called to be a light for Jesus because we're all created for a specific work. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's got work for you and me to do, every single one of us. We're all emissaries. Now, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he wrote the book of Galatians to the churches in Galatia that he founded, he called himself an apostle. And I want to give you just a little interesting, I I call this when I geek out a little bit on a word, Um, I love this word apostle because it's interesting that it doesn't actually have the meaning of, we we tend to think of an apostle as a church planter, someone who goes out and starts all these ministries, and there's an aspect of that, but that Greek word technically means emissary or messenger, one sent forth with orders. 
And in the Hebrew language, which the Jews and Paul, of course, would have known very well, the equivalent word is sheliach. Sheliach. Say it. You got to say it with a in, the, in your throat. Okay, say it. Sheliach. 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 <laughs> you all sound like you're getting sick. According to Hebrew oral and written law, the sheliach, or emissary, would be sent out from a rabbi to teach scripture, to collect money for the poor, and to, to, to gather followers for their rabbi. That's what the sheliach did. The sheliach is not a slave with no personal rights of their own having to do with the master says, no. The sheliach is also not an employee. It's not like they are obligated to go out and do something because they're getting paid for it, even though they're not maybe personally involved. No, the sheliach instead is unique in that he or she has his own autonomy to carry out the mission in his own way and yet is an extension of the one who sent him. Can I say that again? The sheliach is unique in that he or she has his very own autonomy to carry out the mission in his own way and yet is an extension of the one who sent him. Powerful, right? We're like ambassadors. We own the message, we live the message, we bring the message, and we represent the rabbi who sent us. So therefore, the Sheliak enlists all his intellect, all his will, desires, feelings, talents, and personal style in the fulfillment of his mission. He's expected to bring all his resourcefulness, all his talent, all his creativity to the task of spreading God's word. You and I have intellect and talent and desires and resources and a style that no one all else has. And it is our job to use it all on behalf of our Rabbi Jesus. Amen? I got thinking about this and I got a little convicted. Because I was thinking, we spend a lot of time thinking about where our next vacation should be, don't we? We get on Google, we're looking and looking, we're trying to find the best Airbnb, you know, we search and search, we, we do pricing. We put a lot of time and effort into our next vacation, don't we? We put a lot of time and effort into, uh, you know, remodeling our homes, right? I need a new bathroom, I need a pool, I need whatever. And we spend a lot of money and a lot of time with architects and builders and we get the whole, like we spend a lot of time on that. We spend a lot of effort figuring out where to put our kids in camp because we can't possibly have them home all summer long. And so we're looking for camps, you know, all summer long. So you know, we put a lot of time and effort and money into those camps for those kids. And I got, the Holy Spirit was asking me the question, and I'm going to give it to you. When's the last time you used all your strategic thinking and resources to answer the question, how can I be a light to my community? How can my family be a light to the community? How can I reach out more to my neighbors with the love of Jesus? How can I have more opportunities to share my faith? How much thought and time and effort have we put into that? Have we thought about how to use our homes or our yard as a way of, of having people over, of building relationships, of, of loving others? Have we thought about getting involved in certain clubs or schools in order to, you know, or the community so that we can be a light there? It's very simple. It can be according to your skills. I'm, I knew a lovely woman up in my other uh, old church up in New York, and she was a mom, and she started a little club for girls in her neighborhood. She loved to do crafts, so she did crafts, and she'd always have a little Bible story. Well, this turned into a great club, a girls' club. They've met for years and years, and those little girls are still following Jesus today, many, many years later. What a simple, sweet ministry that she did. 
Now, an interesting example of this was in Laodicea. So when we were traveling, when you go into Asia, Laodicea is one of the churches there. And um, I'll show you just a couple of pictures. You can put up the first one. This is the main drag of Laodicea, very big street, wide streets. It was a very big kind of wealthy city. If you go to the next slide, you can see this was like the center of the square. It was so pretty. It's all these beautiful columns. You can just imagine the big buildings there, people all around. It was a gorgeous um, city. And what? And let's see if there's another picture here. Okay, so what the archaeologists found is ruins in Laodicea and in other cities of homes that had been expanded for house churches to meet in. So if you look here, I'm going to get my pointer, so I'm going to do this without shaking. Yeah, two hands is better. Um, so this is sort of like a layout of a house, right? This is the courtyard, and then these are the, the rooms. And what they have done is they've expanded this part of their house to be a meeting place. Because remember, the house churches met in houses, and after a while, they'd get too big for your ordinary house, which only can hit, you know, eight or ten people in the living room. So they expanded their house in order to have that. If you go to the next slide, you can see what it looks like. Um, this is that, that app, kind of like an apse of a church, right? A little room in the house where people could meet. Probably the speaker would sp stand right there. Next slide shows it a little more clearly. You can kind of see this is how they expanded their house to fit more people and to have a house church. And if you knew the next slide, um, this is kind of the back side of that room, and so they'd I have chairs set up here. Maybe people had to stand. I don't exactly know. But can you imagine this? They did a whole home renovation so that God's people could meet in their house. They didn't put on a pool. They didn't put on a new bathroom. They put a home renovation so God's people could meet in their home. At great cost, obviously. At great cost, at time, the invasion of their personal space. We need to ask ourselves the question, how can I use everything I have? God, everything I have belongs to you. So how can I use everything I have, my intellect, my resources, my time, to be a light for Jesus, to bring the good news all around me? May our prayer be, Lord, use my house, use my time, use my, my education, use my, my relationships, my family, use my dog. We have a lot of good ministry with our dog, I'll tell you. You go walking with the dog, you see a lot of people. People love to talk to your dog. Lord, we want to spread your gospel. So this is one of the ways we stay with something that is hard and painful and requires perseverance. We do it when, we, when we're excited about it. We do it when we know it has to be us. And lastly, we stick with something when we know it's worth it. One of the kind of sad stories of Acts um, and from the first missionary journey is the story of John Mark, okay? So he was Barnabas's cousin. If we go to the, um, I think there's a map next. Let's see. Uh, no, yeah, there we go. Um, Mark lived in Cyprus where, where Barnabas lived. And so Barnabas and Paul set out from Antioch. They went to Cyprus. They picked up Mark. Mark sailed with them, ministered with them in Cyprus, and then sailed with them to Perga. And then he left. Okay, in Acts 13, 13, it says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And according to Paul, this was a desertion. Okay? He was deserting them. Later, at the start of the second missionary journey, Paul refused to take John Mark with him. And here's why he said in Acts 15, he said, But Paul did not think it wise to take him, John Mark we're talking about here, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. And had not continued with them in the work. And Paul and Barnabas actually ended up disagreeing so sharply over this, they parted company for a time. Why did John Mark leave at that point? Could have been a lot of reasons. One of the reasons uh, may have been 
that Paul was sick. We know that from, from the book of Galatians that Paul had been ill while in Galatia. Some people think he may have had an eye problem. Some people think he might have gotten malaria from Perga because it's down by the marshy water. You know, who knows? Um, and, and maybe John Mark thought, you know, this guy's sick. Like, this is crazy to be going into Galatia. I don't know. Um, I got to tell you that I had a lot more sympathy for Mark after traveling in this area. Okay, I want to show you a little bit what Galatia looks like. This was flying into Galatia, so you can see all the, the incredibly rough terrain. It was gorgeous, but the mountains and all this stuff. If you go to the next one, um, these are the mountains of Galatia that they would have had to traverse to get to Pisidian Antioch, where they were going. This is on our way up it. We drove. It was two and a half hours by car to get from Perga to um, Pisidian Antioch. So I can, you can only imagine weeks on foot <laughs> over mountains. Um, the next one shows you um, the immense lakes, a lot big lakes you'd have to go around, um, huge lakes in this area, um, absolutely beautiful. Is there one more? I can't remember uh, if we have one more after this. Oh, and yeah, lots of ground to cover. I mean, just tons and tons of hills, mountains, lakes. Um, that was a tough trip. I think if I was John Mark, I'd been like, you know what, hang on. <laughs> Maybe I didn't want to sign up for this. It was going into the winter time. There would have been robbers on the road, wild animals. Um, very, very tough trip. The Apostle Paul just couldn't understand this. For him, it was all worth it. He was going to get to go to Pisidian Antioch. He was going to get to go to Galatia, preach the gospel. People were going to get saved. Churches were going to be planted. That was all so worth the cost. See, when it's worth it, we'll take on any cost. We'll do anything because we know that it's worth it. The good news we know from other parts of the Bible, Colossians and 2 Timothy and so on, that Paul and John Mark were later reconciled. Um, and they work together in ministry again. Mark is considered to be the author of the Gospel of Mark, which is a um, transcription of the firsthand witness of Peter. And church tradition says that Mark, later on, see all the disciples scattered to different parts of the world to spread the Gospel. So tradition says that Mark went down to Alexandria, Egypt, and was the founder of the, what we now know as the Coptic Egyptian church. And he also was martyred for his faith. In fact, the description says that he was killed by a rope being placed around his neck and being dragged through the streets until dead. Mark paid the ultimate price. He knew it was worth it. He gave his life for the spread of the gospel. And I kind of love that he and Peter worked together on the gospel of Mark because you think of Peter. Peter's the one who denied Jesus and Mark's the one who failed Paul, but both of them came back and were able to be used mightily of God. Gives me great hope. So is it worth it in the end to give our lives, whatever the cost, whatever the price, to serving God and helping people find Jesus? There's a hard word that we don't often preach on in churches in Matthew 16, but Jesus said it. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And Paul certainly knew this. He there was a great cost to him of spreading the gospel. He had desertion from his friends. Paul, or Mark was not the only one to desert him in the end. He had strenuous physical challenges. We calculate that Paul would have covered 8,000 miles of terrain by foot in his 20 years of ministry, if you can imagine that. Um, he had physical problems and sickness. That thorn in his flesh that wouldn't go away was most likely a sickness. Um, he had other physical ailments. He had rejection from his Jewish brothers. Almost nowhere did he get a good reception from his Jewish brothers. And he had been raised in that tradition. He was respected by those people. And now he was considered a traitor. Must have broken his heart. 
And, of course, he faced serious and painful and terrifying persecution, beatings and, and jail sentence and stoning and left for dead. And, and, and Paul also was martyred for his faith, beheaded in Rome. So I ask us the question, are there costs to us to live missionally, to spread the good news about Jesus? It doesn't always have to have a cost. Many times it's just as simple as sharing our story, and there's a delight in that. Most of us will not die for our faith. Praise God for that. For all the troubles our country may have, um, praise God we can meet like this freely. Uh, you can have any religion or no religion at all, and we have that here. So thankfully, we probably won't die for our faith, but I do believe that God is calling us a little bit out of our comfort zone with this series, saying, are you doing everything you can to spread the word of God? And sometimes it will cost us. Um, sometimes it may cost you some status in the world to be a Christian. We may be looked down upon if we stand up for doing the right thing at work. If we say no to certain jobs or situations because we know they honor God, people may not understand that. We can also sometimes be held to a higher standard. I had a friend who said, I kind of hate it when people at my workplace find out I'm a Christian because then I got to act better. <laughs> Which I kind of get. But we all have to work at this, don't we? Having an authentic Christian life, consistent life, where we're the same at home and at work and you know, that costs us something, right? It has to, it, it, it's revealing, it's a vulnerable place to be. Some of us might get criticized even within our own families for trusting Christ. Some people might say, you're still trusting in God? What has he done for you lately? Or you're such a smart person, why do you believe in all this stuff? And I just want to say something, to, if that's any of you that struggle with, with people's reaction to you being a person of faith. And I want to just say, be confident in your faith and in your walk with Jesus. Jesus has changed your life, has he not? Yes. He's been real to you, has he not? Yes. That's your story. No one can take that away from you. And not everyone will understand it or agree with it. Oh, well. <laughs> so we're not the most popular person on the block, but, but we can live our life of faith. We can live it with love, with kindness, with respect. We can live it. Chris pointed this out last week, and I loved Chris's message. If you haven't heard it, you need to listen to it about, about sharing our faith. And he said, we don't have to prove anything to people. We have to prove people that Jesus is real. Just live your life. Live your life as Christ would have it and point to Jesus. Point to Jesus. The other thing it could cost us is time and resources. We kind of alluded to this already, just as the people who expanded their house in Laodicea. God may call you to expend some resources for the kingdom of God in some way. He also may ask us to spend some time. Chris also shared last week from 1 Thessalonians. Paul said they shared the gospel and their lives. He spent time with them. Sharing life together takes time. It's something for us to do, to be there, to sit down for coffee, to go on walks with people, to create, form relationships because God loves them. And they're made in his image and just to love them. I know that most of us feel so busy all the time that we think, I don't have time to add anything else to my schedule. And I might challenge you this morning, and it's, it's a challenge to myself as well. Maybe something has to go if we want to live our life missionally, to be available, to have margin, to talk to people on the road, to spend time with others, to share our story when the, when the moment arises, as opposed to thinking, I can't, I can't talk about it now, I've got to rush. So it's, it's a challenge to me. And I know it's a challenge to many of us. It's so worth the cost. Every person you meet is made in the image of God. And you may be the person that God has chosen to share his love with. 
And lastly, and I, I hesitate to mention this, but I do think this is true, particularly in our culture today, one of the costs is potentially of us being misunderstood as Christians. Um, sometimes people will, will misunderstand, they will think um, that we're closed-minded or that we're not very smart or that we're judging them because we don't, they don't believe the same way that we do. We, they may link us to other Christian groups doing things that we don't approve of. Um, and there's many, many different Christian groups doing things that we may not feel that comfortable with. And we can even be exceptionally sensitive and kind and still be thought of as that narrow-minded Christian person. And this can be hard. I mean, I like to be liked. I don't know about you, but I like people to think I'm cool and uh, not weird. And, um, you know, that's, that can sometimes be hard. Let me be clear. I don't ever advocate being obnoxious or weird with our faith. We don't have to pound people with the Bible. We don't have to lecture people or pressure them. We don't have to give all our opinions about their lives before we've been invited into the conversation. We don't have to do any of that. We're meant to be witnesses. We said this morning, we're witnesses. Charles said it. We're witnesses. All we need to do is tell our story, what Jesus has done in our life. Sometimes I think as Christians we end up getting persecuted, not because Jesus is the offense, but because we're offensive. So let's not invite that kind of persecution. Let's tell our story. Let's love. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. And so I want to close with this passage. Both Paul and Jesus remind us that we might at times be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, to hide it a little bit, because we don't know how people will react to it. But this is what Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And Jesus said this, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Never be afraid to talk about what Jesus has done as you. It's your story. Never be ashamed of what Jesus has done. He's done it for everyone. There's love to go around. We have the greatest news there is. Do we not? We've been set free from every sin. There's nothing else in this world that will give you such freedom, such joy as knowing Jesus. And so let's live it. Let's believe it. Let's be excited about it. And let's share it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much that you died for our sins. Lord, and that we are set free from every sin. Lord, that there's nothing held against us, Lord, that we don't have to live in shame and guilt. And so this morning as the musicians come back forward and our prayer teams come forward, I just want us to take a moment, like us to just rest with what God has put on our hearts from today. Maybe we need to get a little more in touch with how much Jesus has done for us, to be excited about what he's done. Maybe it's been true for so long, we just forgot to be excited about it. But Lord, we are so glad that you died for our sins, that you've changed our life, that you've transformed us, that you are the solution to our fears and our anxieties. We also thank you, Lord, for where you've placed us, Lord, the region, the people, the families, the, the, the neighborhoods, the, the employment, Lord, where we are placed, Lord, would you open our eyes to those who might want to hear about you, Lord? We're, we're not going to just throw it out to anyone, but Lord, if you would open our eyes, open up conversations to those who might want to hear a little bit of our story. Help us to love with your love, Lord. To speak only your words. And Lord, I just thank you that you are worth it. 
and your gospel is real. And so we build our life upon you, Lord. We build our life upon you.